welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Well, we can turn to 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2. Today, um, we're going to complete, pretty much finish up, an explanation of end times events, a sequence of end times events that, uh, that I have become pretty confident of. And as we begin, I'd like you to know that, that also uh, our elders, Anthony Albrino, um, Steve Elger, have also expressed, we've talked many times, many evenings about this, uh, they too have uh, come to strongly embrace this, this same view of what we call eschatology, this, uh, these end times. I've heard from a large number of you who've expressed over the last couple, three months as well how uh, you feel uh, you have an understanding that you didn't previously have before. The Bible teaches Christ's church has from its inception endured immense tribulation. Some have been killed. Others have been imprisoned. Uh, at times, there's even been great tribulation amongst Christians. And Christ will return at the end of this age to rescue us all, to, to rapture us all, as He pours out His wrath on those left behind. And although our American religious experience our, our experience, you know, has been in great part spared of severe tribulation. We got to admit, modern-day America, we are only a small, a tiny fraction of believers throughout history. Um, our, ours is a minority experience throughout time. Uh, yet, uh, we still have probably experienced a, a disproportionate intensity of apostasy in this modern era. We've had more than our share of apostasy. And today as we look at 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, we will see that the coming of Christ and our rapture occur on the day of the Lord. These verses are amongst the most debated in all of Scripture. And there exist, quite honestly, among Christian brethren, a number of explanations for these verses uh, that are described in, in verse 3 through 10. Today I'm going to offer you mine. Um, you don't have to accept my explanation to be a Christian. Uh, you merely have to endure about the next 45 minutes or so. <laughs> Still, I invite everyone uh, to judiciously listen and not immediately discount what you hear because of something that you might have been taught differently by someone else in another place. I will admit my take on these verses could be wrong. It could be wrong. But I have a pretty strong confidence in what I'm about to share. That confidence is strengthened not by the clarity offered in these seven verses, eight verses, uh, this short passage. Not that it's especially clear, 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, but my confidence is strengthened by the clarity given in other passages that we have already studied. I have no question that the 77s of Daniel 9, the 70 weeks, all 70 weeks, not just 69 of them, but all 70 weeks fulfill God's promise to make an end to sin, atonement for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness through Messiah the Prince. In Matthew 18, Christ even identified the 70th seven as complete and unlimited forgiveness as he talked to Peter and the other disciples. Never did he ever describe the 70th seven as 
as seven years of worldwide wrath. Never described. For this reason, I do not impose Daniel's 70th week upon our passage today, uh, and neither are Daniel nor a 70th seven mentioned by Paul anywhere in this passage. Nor are they in any other of Paul's epistles. In fact, 77s are not defined elsewhere in the New Testament, only by Jesus in Matthew 18. And I believe my eschatology is also supported by my belief that the description of a firm or a, a mighty strong covenant in Daniel is the answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer is a confession to the Father that, that Israel, he says, we, Daniel includes himself, we have failed to keep your covenant. Have mercy, O Father, act now. And uh, the response to Daniel's prayer is given in the promise in the form of a new covenant made by Christ with the many for one week. That week is the 70th seven. Therefore, all who are in Christ are deposited into the complete forgiveness of the 70th week. Christ becomes our 70th seven, our perfect eternal righteousness, complete forgiveness, just as he has also become our Sabbath rest. As we said a few weeks ago, uh, people who keep the Sabbath today don't keep it for a 24-hour period anymore. In Christ, the Sabbath is perfect rest, perpetual rest in Christ. We rest in the work that He has done. He has become our 70th seven through the new covenant. Therefore, I do not impose any covenant made by an antichrist upon today's passage because such a covenant with Israel made by an antichrist is nowhere mentioned in this passage. Nor is it observed elsewhere in Scripture. You would think if it were his point that the Apostle Paul would have mentioned it somewhere. And furthermore, in perfect fulfillment of Daniel 9 and Jesus' own teachings in the Olivet Discourse, um, Jerusalem and its temple were surrounded by Roman armies and they were violently destroyed by Titus in 70 A.D., and Jesus describes those horrors that were experienced as a great tribulation. Not the great tribulation, it's a great tribulation in Matthew 24. That human experience of misery chronicled by the Jewish historian Josephus, it remains unparalleled to this day. The horrors that were experienced in Jerusalem as the Roman armies um, sieged that city and that temple. They were what Jesus called the days of God's vengeance. They had rejected the Christ. They had nailed him to a cross and refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Sacrifice and grain offerings were ceased when the temple was dismantled block by block completely. And Jesus himself defined that as Jerusalem's desolation. After which the Jews are told in Luke 21 and verse 24, you will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that abomination of desolation described on Mount Olivet, it occurred in 70 AD. Consequently, as we learned last week from Zechariah 4, the church is now the final temple of God. Paul stated concerning this, this spiritual temple that we are, that no other foundation can ever be laid. Christ is the foundation. No man can lay any other foundation, we learn in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, so, so if there 
ever is a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem, offering goats in the place of Christ, it will never be the temple of God. Curiously, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, they never make reference to Israel or Jerusalem. You'll notice that Daniel, the 70th seven, a seven-year tribulation, Antichrist making a covenant, restored temple sacrifices, and abomination and desolation are completely absent from this passage. They do not appear anywhere in these two books. Paul makes no reference to any of them. That, folks, is a great omission. These were inserted by a man named John Nelson Darby around the year 1830. They became very popular after that. As I begin to read from verse 1, note how the coming of Christ and our gathering together with Him, the rapture, both occur on the day of the Lord. So Christ will not appear, the rapture will not occur, and the day of the Lord will not convene unless the apostasy comes first and uh, this man of lawlessness must be revealed. That creates another hurdle for the pre-tribulation rapture view, that these must occur before Christ can come and the rapture take place on the day of the Lord. Please notice also as I read this activity of lawlessness, the exalting of self, taking of a seat in the temple of God, displaying oneself as being God, they are all written as happening in the present tense way back in 51 A.D., 51, 52 A.D. when this letter was written. So these are not exclusively future events performed only by an end times antichrist. Sorry. And finally, the Greek is very specific in this passage, revealing that this revealing of this man of lawlessness is a result of and a consequence of the appearing of Christ, who then immediately slays Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and brings him to an end by the appearance of his coming. So what is the point of the passage? If none of these other things are the point of the passage, what is the point of this passage for Christians? Well, in light of chapter 1, which promises an end to these persecutions and tribulations, which Christians have now endured for some 2,000 years, and to the horrors that we are forced to witness when watching an apostasy occur in Christ's church, and the lawlessness that abounds increasingly over time, Christians are assured by this passage that Christ's triumphant return is finally going to put a lid on lawlessness. That is the entire point of this passage, that Christ's return is going to put a lid on lawlessness. In verse 1, Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus, that is his parousia, and our gathering together to him, that is the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So the coming of Christ and the rapture are elements of the day of the Lord. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it, referring to the day of the Lord, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, 
the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And do you know what restrains him now? So that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end, how? By the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, that's the man of lawlessness again, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So picking up in verse 3, we've already talked at length about the, the apostasy, an apostasy that occurs in the temple of God. That is Christ's church. Apostasy involves a, a falling away from true doctrine, a falling away from orthodoxy, and he who has been instrumental in causing this apostasy is referred to as uh, the man of lawlessness. Though Paul doesn't use the terminology, it would be correct to identify the man of lawlessness as an antichrist. The antichrist is language used by the Apostle John. Antichrists have always been present in the church and the Apostle John assures in 1 John 2, verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Listen to this. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be made manifest that they are not really of us. Speaking of the Antichrist in that passage. So the, these Antichrists, they've, they've always been around. One notable characteristic is that Antichrists do not confess Jesus as God incarnate. They do not confess Him as coming in the flesh. Folks, they don't focus on sound doctrine at all. But instead, we learned two weeks ago that they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Their message is attractive to the world. And my impression is, rather than focusing on God becoming man, history has demonstrated they tend to focus on how man becomes God. You shall become like God is the first deception in the Bible. Satan and his minions have been working that angle for a good long time now. And, and though we Christians are appalled by such assertions, the world loves it world will eat that up, that man can become God. And John says, by this you know the spirit of the Antichrist. In fact, 2 John, in verse 7, states in the present tense. 2 John, verse 7, in the present tense, in, in about the year 90 A.D., late 80s A.D., John says, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Therefore, John says, watch out for yourselves. Watch out. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So, the Antichrist, 
the spirit of the Antichrist, and therefore the influence of many Antichrists cannot be pushed out exclusively to some distant future event. Antichrist is not solely an end times Antichrist, but he is a rather all the time Antichrist. The body of Christ has been dealing with various manifestations of him all along. But in the end, verse 3 assures, oh, he's going to be revealed. His revealing is a future event. But first, verse 4 reveals what this man of lawlessness has been up to. This is what he's been doing in the temple of God, Christ's church. He opposes. He exalts himself. He places himself above everyone and everything. All described as occurring in the present tense in 51 to 52 A.D. He insists on being preeminent above every so-called God or object of worship. Though it is possible that he eventually might at some point in the future, the text does not actually say that he forces people to bow down and worship him. It doesn't say that. Instead, it says he elevates himself and his selfish interests above all worship. Being number one is his M.O. That's what he does. That is his persona. The Antichrist wants to be first all the time. First in the church. And that desire to always be first, exalted above all else. Folks, that is the spirit of the Antichrist. Does this remind you of anyone you might have met? Don't shout out any names. Even more than this, the man of sin takes his seat in the temple of God and displays himself as deity. He displays himself as being God. He identifies as divine. Or at least has attributes of being divine. Perhaps one of the most critical influences to your eschatology will come through recognizing that verse 4 does not describe a one-time future event. In the year 51 to 52 AD, taking his seat in the temple of God is written in the Greek present, errorist, and infinitive tense. You're asking, well, what does that mean? Well, I looked it up. Errorist describes an action completed in the past. Present tense describes activity that continues ongoing in the present. And the infinitive mood signifies infinity. I think we know what that means. It sets no limit on persons or number. Displaying himself as being God describes activity that was both present and active during the first century A.D. Verse 7 assures well, uh, the mystery of lawlessness. It's already at work. And you can discern the present tense is clearly expressed even in your English translations. You have good translations. You don't have to know Greek to, to sense that this activity is in the present tense when Paul writes these letters. The, the only mystery that remains throughout church history, since he has not yet been revealed, here's the mystery. Who is he? And where is he busy working right now? 
That's the mystery of lawlessness. The only characteristic about an Antichrist that remains exclusively in the future, solely to the future, is his revealing when our Lord appears to slay him with the breath of his mouth. Paul says, well, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Oh, in 51 AD he's restrained now? Even though he's busy at work now? Oh, yeah. The restraint doesn't prevent the Antichrist from continuing his work. That continues ongoing. It restrains him from thwarting God's plan. Well, what is God's plan? I'm glad you asked. As I stated earlier, he is not only an end times Antichrist, he is an all the time Antichrist. But in the very end, his identity is going to be revealed. Currently, his activity is restrained while his identity is concealed. And like Paul insisted to Thessalonica, uh, do we know what restrains him now? Oh, of course. We know. Jesus said in Mark 3, verse 27, No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. The strong man persona is, is Satan, and his dominion before Christ went to the cross had remained the Gentile nations. That, that was his house. And while God worked through Israel during the Old Covenant, Satan at that time held the nations captive. They were captive to darkness. And he reckoned them as his very own property. But Jesus declared in Luke 4, verse 18, I came to release the captives and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. I came to release them from their darkness. In that same context, Jesus reminded his hometown of Nazareth. He's at the synagogue in Nazareth. Uh, how God had showed grace to a widow named Zarephath. She was a Gentile. And to Naaman, a Syrian, another Gentile. And the Jews were filled with rage. They said, no way. No, 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 no. Our God will not show grace to the Gentiles. You know what they tried to do with Jesus? They tried to run him off a cliff. Yet the divine imperative that Gentiles hear the gospel becomes the basis of the Great Commission. Jesus declares that I will bind that strong man until the gospel is preached to all the nations and we're going to plunder that guy's house. First we plunder the strong man's house and then the end will come. In our earlier scripture reading from Matthew chapter 24, you heard Jesus say to Christians, they will deliver you to tribulation. You will be hated by all nations. Many will fall away, apostasy, and will betray one another and hate one another. False prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. They're there Jesus describes your tribulation, your apostasy, and an increase in end times lawlessness. 
exactly like 2 Thessalonians shows us. Tribulation, apostasy, increase in lawlessness. And what is going to happen before the end will come? What must happen before the end will come? Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then, and only then, the end will come. So at the cross, Jesus binds the strong man to the extent that the strong man cannot interfere with the Lord's work among the nations. And he takes plunder from all those nations through the preaching of the gospel. And it's after this that the end will come. So verse 7, we know the he who restrains now. It is Christ who binds the strong man. And we know what it is that now restrains. It's the prerequisite of the Great Commission. The divine imperative is that all nations must first hear the gospel. Jesus assures the end cannot come until the gospel is first preached as a testimony to all nations. It cannot come. The restrainer is a he. You'll see in your passage we have both a he and an it. The restrainer is a he. It is Christ. And that which restrains is an it. It is Christ's imperative that the Great Commission be fulfilled. The strong man must be restrained until the nations are plundered. Let's go to all the nations. The following observation by John Calvin would suggest, though the visible church has already, in his days, it has already, and will continue to apostatize, the end cannot come until the Great Commission is fulfilled. Calvin says, I seem at least, when he's describing this passage, I seem at least to hear Paul discoursing, discoursing as to the universal call of the Gentiles, that the grace of God must be offered to all, that Christ must enlighten the whole world by his gospel, in order that the impiety of men might be more fully attested and demonstrated. This, therefore, was the delay. That was the restraint. This, therefore, was the delay until the career of the gospel should be completed. Because a gracious invitation to salvation was first in order. Well, that's good. Until the preaching of the gospel is accomplished in all nations, the strong man will be continued to be restrained until Christ, until his house by Christ is sufficiently plundered. Then the end will come. Therefore, in verse 7, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The he who now restrains is Christ. And the he who will be taken out of the way is the Antichrist. And then, and only then, verse 8 then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Here's what's really revealing. From the best resources I have, specialists in the Greek, they insist this revealing of the lawless one must occur on the day of the Lord. The same day in which Christ appears. The same day in which we are gathered together to Him. The Greek grammar demands it. Antichrist does not get revealed before the Lord's return. 
he gets revealed by the Lord's return. When Christ slays him and brings him to an end by the appearance of his coming. None of us will know with certainty, though we might be suspicious, none of us will know with certainty who the final Antichrist is until Jesus returns and pulls back his mask. Until then, his work will remain a mystery of lawlessness and will continue until Christ returns. This is the mystery of lawlessness. Who is he and where is he working now? Again, John Calvin, himself no slouch in the Greek, we know, he writes this, quote, For as Antichrist cannot stand otherwise than through the impostures of Satan, meaning through the power of Satan, he must necessarily vanish as soon as Christ shines forth. In short, says Calvin, as it is only in darkness that he reigns, the dawn of the day puts to flight and extinguishes the thick darkness of his reign. We are now in possession of Paul's design, meaning for this passage, this is Paul's design, uh, what he meant to say, says Calvin, that Christ would have no difficulty in destroying the tyranny of the Antichrist, which was supported by no resources but those of Satan. In the meantime... However, he points out the marks by which that wicked one may be distinguished. For after, after having spoken of the working or efficacy of Satan, Paul, remarks it, Paul marks it out as particularly, or excuse me, he marks it out particularly when he says, in signs and lying wonders and in all deceivableness. And assuredly, in order that this may be opposed to the kingdom of Christ, it must consist partly in false doctrine and errors and partly in pretended miracles. Sounds like Calvin had a problem with that in his day too. He continues, For the kingdom of Christ consists of the doctrine of truth and the power of the Spirit. Satan, accordingly, with the view of opposing Christ in the person of his vicar, puts on Christ's mask. While he, nevertheless, at the same time, chooses armor with which he may directly oppose Christ. The Antichrist wears a mask. The mystery of lawlessness. Calvin had some suspicions, as we know. This age of lawlessness is characterized by fake miracles, doctrines of apostasy, attitudes that elevate man, efforts at deifying man. Folks, this is what the Antichrist does. The world eats it up. It may cause Christians to wonder, oh, how long, O oh Lord? How long will you allow this, this madness, this apostasy, this tribulation to continue? And a question to which Jesus responds to the martyrs of Revelation 6, a little while longer, until the number of your fellow servants and their brethren who were killed even as they had been would be completed also. The lawlessness, the apostasy will continue until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And then Jesus is going to put a lid on it. But the gospel must first be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. Verses 9 and 10 merely show that the the man of lawlessness is empowered by Satan. He too has a coming or a presence that is marked by opposing Christ with all kinds of power and signs and false 
wonders. We'll speak a little bit more to those passages, uh, those verses next week. As I've read Calvin and, and numerous others, um, I tend to agree with him that this passage describes the activity of a succession of many antichrists over the century. Surely there are those who have opposed Christ uh, even before the cross. Of course, there's King Herod who, who tried to kill all of the babies in Bethlehem to try to, to snuff out competition of Christ. Um, obviously, during the Old Covenant, there came a man named Antiochus Epiphanes who attempted to, to destroy the woman, Israel, who was going to give birth to Christ. And, and Antichrist, uh, Antiochus was surely a type of Antichrist, no doubt about that. But the work described in this passage occurs in the church. And the fact that the man of lawlessness was already active in 51 AD implies a succession of Antichrists. I, I don't think many, because it describes him as a man of lawlessness. I don't think there are many men who have lived for 2,000 years. So there, so there has, has had to have been many manifestations of Antichrist over the centuries. His activity was then. His activity was during the Reformation. His activity continues today. And John the Apostle says, you know, many Antichrists have come. And then says, he's still coming too. He continues to come. And this passage assures there will, there will remain a manifestation of him, perhaps the worst manifestation of him until that day that Christ returns. But we don't know his identity for sure. And we won't know until Christ returns to reveal him. He will continue to seditiously undermine that Jesus is God made into human flesh. Folks, that can be done in so many ways. So many ways. Number one, by simply not preaching the incarnation. Preach Jesus is a really nice guy. He really likes you. Just, just avoid anything that has to do with the incarnation and the deity of Christ. That's, that's one way. It can also come through casting doubt and discrediting Scripture, which testifies to Christ. Undermine the Word of God is activity of the Antichrist. The Word that, that proclaims that Christ is God in the flesh, just undermine the validity of it. Denying God has come in human flesh can be achieved through undermining the doctrine of the virgin birth. Well, that's going on today. By preachers preaching to thousands and they're casting doubt on the virgin birth. What does that do? Denies that Jesus is God who came in the flesh. Jesus was just a result of a natural birth is what, what they're saying. Very influential preachers. These are all the spirit of the Antichrist. He will attack God coming in the flesh, but instead fiercely promote how human flesh can be made into God. Folks, that doctrine has been reinvented so many times over the centuries in so many evil manifestations. Man becomes God, or man becomes like God. And the world's always loved that. The world will listen to the Antichrist. They like that idea. In Mormon salvation, mortal man becomes God. Adam was a man, like us, who became God. Jesus also was a man who became God in Mormon theology. He left us a path to know uh, how to, to find our way into becoming God. That's Mormon theology, in, in a nutshell. I'm not a specialist on it, but I know those are accurate. 
In Catholicism, mortal man becomes like God. If you grew up Catholic, as my wife did, uh, many others have here, you were taught that the vicar of Christ, the Pope, fulfills Christ's presence on earth. The title vicar implies that the Pope assumes the same power and the same authority that Christ has. He displays himself to the church as as possessing the same power as does deity. So whether you agree, whether you agree with it, that it's accurate or not, it is understandable why Calvin and Luther and numerous reformers identified the Pope as a manifestation of the Antichrist. That's the reason they came to that conclusion. He sets himself up in the temple of God, displaying himself as being deity. He takes the place of Christ. You say, well, maybe that's a stretch. How about this? Mary, the mother of Jesus, a mortal woman, has, according to Catholicism, assumed divine attributes. They say she was born sinless. Mary was born sinless. That's to be attributed to Christ. She is omniscient in Catholic theology. She can hear everyone's prayer of the rosary. Omniscience is an attribute of God. And in the place of God, Mary is prayed to. She's referred to as our, quote, uh, our gracious advocate. But Scripture refers to Christ alone as our only mediator and advocate. In addition, Catholics also They also pray to the patron saints, who obviously must be omniscient as well. My wife was named after one. Saint Hita de Cassia. This is very big in Brazil. The patron saints, those who are assigned saint status. They pray to patron saints, claim to each have specialized areas of expertise. All are exalted in the temple of God. They are being displayed as having attributes of God. Well, who initiated such completely erroneous doctrines? Had to come from within the church. Antichrist is working within the church. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. During the increase of lawlessness and apostasy... Church will become increasingly about man rather than about Christ. An apostate church will not emphasize worshiping God, but how to achieve a more fulfilled life. Man will be placed above God. It will become a church, will become a great place to network and further your self-interests on earth. Many people will select a church according to how many business cards they can hand out, whether or not someone sees their business painted on the side of their vehicle in the parking lot. It will become a place of exalting self, displaying self, and reinventing self over and above the place of God. Man will claim to have God's power. As I stated recently, uh, man, by his words, will be described as being able to speak things into existence. Your words have power, they say, powerful enough to create your own future. By the power of you speaking words, you can create. Who does that sound like? Only God can do that. You can't assign that to man. Man can't become God. But today, he's taking the role of God. Your words have divine power, they say. 
Man can control the weather. Man becomes God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's only going to get worse. Jesus assured that lawlessness will only increase. Many will fall away. False prophets will arise. Some are going to be killed. Some of us are going to be killed. People will hate one another. And their love will grow cold. So as we are forced to witness an increasing apostasy, while we also continue to fulfill the Great Commission among the nations, waiting for the end to come, folks, we're going to have to watch the tares grow alongside of the wheat. The harvest will be later. And if you're discouraged, if you're disheartened by what you see, don't be. Folks, this is all temporary. And what Paul ultimately wants you to know from this passage is that Jesus is coming. And he's going to put a lid on lawlessness. Amen. Let's pray.